Well, I invite you to turn with me in the Bible to the book of Romans, chapter 8. We'll be considering Romans 8, 31 through 39 this morning. For those of you who were here for the first service, we did uh, something of a look back at 2023, taking Psalm 105 and seeing how we should look at God, how we should think about him and his grace and his mercy to us. I had mentioned that it's an older tradition in some Dutch Reformed circles to have an old year's service and a new year's service to remember what God has done in the past year and to look ahead to what God is going to do in this new year. And so, as you might imagine, this second service is going to focus more on how we are to think about this year coming up, how we are to consider 2024, what we can know. And I'm sure if you've been in a Reformed church for any number of time, any number of years, turning to the book of Romans is not a shock to you. It's something that we're quite good at, turning to Romans. I'm sure many of our Bibles probably open there on their own. But maybe it's something that we need to consider. We should look at this with fresh eyes to really understand what it is that God is saying to us. To not let familiarity uh, take away some of the wonder and the comfort that Romans 8, 31 through 39 bring to us. So I'll begin reading at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Since the reading of God's holy word, let's go to him and ask for his aid once again this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage of scripture that your spirit inspired. We thank you for the illumination that we know he gives to us even to understand it. This morning, thousands of years later, we pray that we would see more of Christ and his gospel and of you for us this morning, that this will give us confidence as we move towards a new year that you have given to us from your fatherly hand. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we consider a new year, we know that it is sometimes good to remember things. That's what we did this morning, is we remembered who God is and what he has done. It's also a good thing, and it's often what we tend to do at the beginning of a new year, to look forward, to see what is coming down the pike towards us. And of course, often we aren't sure. We don't know exactly what 2024 has in store any more than we knew what 2023 had in store one year ago today. But perhaps sometimes it's good, especially on times like this, we're already thinking of time and years and those sorts of things, to really double down on fundamental things. To really double down on the basics. For all of you who have gone through either a profession of faith interview in this church or a new member interview, you've heard the question asked in recent years, can you explain the gospel to us in 60 seconds or less? 
And perhaps that's a strange question for you because in how many situations are you going to be in where you have to explain the gospel in 60 seconds or less? And yet I think it's an important question. It's one that we ask in those interviews for a reason because it's foundational, it's basic to who we are as Christians, to what we are as a Christian church, to who we are as the people of God. There's a reason that we ask this question. And so as I considered here, as I was given the task of proclaiming the word of God to you on this last service that we hold in this year, 2023, I had a lot of considerations to take into account. I had to think, what exactly is the pressing need? Where should I turn? And as I considered, as your pastor, what I wanted for you in 2024, there were a number of things. But one thing that came up again and again and again is that I want you to be assured of these things, that all who are trusting in Christ can be assured that God in Christ is your Father, that the gospel is true to know and remember and be assured of the things that we read about in Romans 8, 31 through 39, and to carry this with you into the first day and the first days of this new year. And so we're only going to have two headings this morning, slightly different than often is the case. But first we're going to see that there are many questions in this passage, starting in verse 31 down through verse 36. There are many questions. In the first one we see in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? This first question can really be boiled down to, summarized as, is God enough? Is God sufficient? As Paul begins there, what then? It's kind of like when he says, therefore. And of course, there's that corneal line. When you see therefore, you have to ask what there is for. What therefore is therefore. I messed that up. But you can imagine that in your mind as much better than it actually is. You have to ask, what is therefore, therefore? Well, it's the same with what then? What exactly is he saying? What is he responding to? Well, he's just shown throughout the book of Romans in the first eight chapters the wonderful grace of God in Jesus Christ. And Romans begins and he tells the people he is writing to that he has never met many of them. He's met some of them. But he tells them that he is not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation for all who believe. And then he explains for eight chapters now basically what the gospel is. First turning to how we're all condemned and then how Christ comes and he is salvation for all who believe in him. And Romans 8 comes along and basically this is the culmination. This is what Paul has been working towards this entire time. The previous section we had ideas of predestination and calling and justification and glorification that what God starts in salvation for his people he will finish. And that's where Paul comes in and says, what then? He asks the question, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Really, as we consider this set of questions here in verses 31 through 36, we can think of it as one big question, and that's this question in verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? And the others are basically sub-questions. This is the big overarching umbrella, and all the other ones are helping us flesh out what exactly this means and helping us to think through and to arrive at a good answer. If God is for us here, it's assumed to be true. It's assumed to be true. Paul is not saying, well, we can't know if God is for us, but if he is, then this and this and this. No, he's saying God is for us. And I can tell you that if you're here and you're trusting in Christ, you've repented of your sins, that God is assuredly for you. And so if God is for us, who can be against us? This is a question asked in confidence. Meant to really get us to think about what it means for God to be for us. In the words of one commentator, the words God is for us are a concise summary of the gospel. I think that's quite true. 
God is for us is a concise summary of the gospel. And if God is for us, and he is, then who can be against us? And so the first question really is, is God enough? Is there something else we need? Is there someone or something that's strong enough to take us from God, equal to him or greater than him? If someone is against us and we have God for us, is that going to be enough? Is he going to be enough for us? That's the big overarching question that Paul is asking. Perhaps it's a good one for us to ask in our own minds, in our own hearts. If God is for us, who can be against us? And we can hear these things perhaps on a Sunday or we read them maybe in the morning as we get up and we read through the Bible and we read these words in Romans 8. And then sometimes don't we often live as if the answer can be different than the answer that's actually given in Scripture? Because the implied answer is if God is for us, who can be against us? The answer is really no one, or at least no one important, perhaps we can say. And I know that I'm probably the chief offender here. That I can hear things on Sunday, I can proclaim things on Sunday, I can read the Bible as I get up in the morning, I can work on a sermon all morning, and by the afternoon sometimes I'm wondering, is God for me? Or if he is, who can be against me? I don't know. Begin to wonder, begin to doubt, begin to think, hmm, is he enough for this? Is he enough for that? Is he truly going to be with me? Are his promises really true? As we consider this, is God enough? The answer is yes, and there are certain reasons, and these other sub-questions help us to see. So we see in verse 32, the question basically, what is missing? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So again, this is a question expecting a certain answer, in this case, a positive answer. It's really sometimes known as arguing from the greater to the lesser. That if God has given us the greatest thing, and he has in Jesus Christ, if he has not spared his own son but sent him to us, but delivered him up for us, if Christ came willingly and lived and died for us, then how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What basically Paul is asking is, if God is going to go to this length, going to go this far for you, why would he not give you lesser things? If he's going to give you the greatest blessing, namely salvation, so that you can be with him for eternity, how will he not also give you all things as well? The smaller goods, if he's given you the greater good. The answer is certainly he will. Now I realize we're just after Christmas now. And perhaps as you're thinking about the things you got as uh, Christmas morning came and you unwrapped presents, perhaps things were on your list that you got and things were on your list that you didn't get. I know as a kid I would always ask for certain things that I would like to have for Christmas and good toys and all those sorts of things. And there were some things that I knew there's no point in even asking because I know this isn't possible. Whether it was an actual car or whatever it might have been. But some things I knew were going to come to me and some things were not. That I was not being given all things. I didn't get everything I wanted because often my desires were wrong but also because sometimes my desires were so great that they couldn't be met by perhaps by my parents. And so as we consider these things, and as Paul says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that God will graciously give us all things, maybe there's something in your mind that has kind of an alarm bell going off. Wait a minute. I know that each and every single person in this room has had things that they wanted, even good things that they did not receive whether it's this job or that program to be accepted into for college or a spouse or children or good health or whatever it might be. We could all come and have our own list of things that we want that maybe are even good things, let alone, we aren't thinking about the sinful things here, but all things that are good 
that we want and we don't receive, or at least we don't receive when we want them. We can ask what's going on here. Is God's word coming untrue? Are we going to have to go the health and wealth, prosperity gospel route and say, well, you don't have it because you don't believe enough, you don't have enough faith? And that's not really what Paul is saying here. When he's saying all things, he's not saying that God is going to give you each and every single desire of your heart, even the good things that you always want. What he's saying here in context is he's going to give you all things necessary to bring you to himself. In the gospel, there are many blessings. And we can list them, and as Reformed people, we're often good at listing them. Election and calling and conversion and regeneration and justification and sanctification and glorification and adoption and all these things. And yes, we must know them and we must rejoice in them. But there's a danger of thinking that these are the greatest blessings. And they're great blessings, don't get me wrong, but they're not the ultimate height of the blessing chart. The reason these things are blessings are because they give us God himself. That God himself comes and gives us these things and draws us more and more to himself so that we can spend all the everlasting ages with him in his special presence in the new heavens and the new earth. But the ultimate blessing of the gospel is God himself. And what Paul is saying here is God has already given us Christ. He has not spared his own son. He's also going to give us all things necessary to bring us to himself. God knows that he is the greatest blessing for us and he will see that we actually get him. And that can give us confidence. That can give us hope, even as we look at 2024. And we have to be honest, we have no idea what's coming. I think we've all recognized that ever since January 1st of 2020, when everyone was saying, this is going to be my year. And it probably wasn't. We don't know what's coming. It could be a great year, it could be a horrible year, it could be probably somewhere in between, as most years are for most people. But we can know that these things are true. That God is not going to give us all things that we desire, but he'll give us all things necessary to give us himself and to bring us to him. And so is God enough? Well, the answer has to be yes. Is there anything missing? And as far as the necessary things to bring us to God, the answer has to be no. But third, who will accuse? Notice with me, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And so this is a courtroom image here. You have to picture in your head sort of going before a judge and there's someone coming up and accusing you of a crime. And in this case, that's true. You have committed a crime. You have sinned against God. And you are guilty in and of yourself and you're deserving condemnation. And the question is, can that person actually accuse you? We can say, if it wasn't for Christ, yes. If it wasn't for Christ, that would be exactly right and true. But Paul, you see, has just spent chapter after chapter explaining what Christ came and did for his people. Explaining justification by faith alone, that we are declared righteous in God's sight, not because of anything we've done, but because through faith in Christ alone, his righteousness is imputed to us, and our sin was imputed, it was reckoned to him, and he paid for it on the cross. And so when God looks at us, he sees us as if we had Christ's 33 years of perfect law-keeping on our own account. And so he's asking, if this is true, who can really ultimately accuse us? Who can accuse us if Christ has died for us and lived for us and earned our justification? Again, the answer is implied, no one. 
No one can accuse. Well, people do accuse, certainly. And in Scripture, we find often that Satan is the one presented as accusing the people of God and bringing charges against them, saying, look at this and look at this. But what this is really saying is all the accusations against those who are justified in Christ can be made, but they will not stick. They can be made, but they will not stick because they're coming to the one who justified us in the first place. There's no higher court of appeal, essentially. Why? Because God himself is the one who justifies us in Jesus Christ. That leads to a related question. Who will condemn in verse 34? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And so the question is, can anyone condemn us? We're moving past accusing now. Accusing is one step on the way. Condemnation is the goal of accusing. Can anyone condemn us? Well, the answer is certainly, we think about this theologically, yes, someone can condemn us, God himself. That God would be perfectly just and righteous and holy to condemn all of humanity as sinful and deserving condemnation and wrath and judgment. But remember, Paul is writing to those who are in Christ. To those who have experienced the wonderful grace and mercy of the gospel. Who have been justified and the answer, can anyone condemn us? Certainly not. Why? Well, basically because Christ died and rose and rules and intercedes for us. And so I'm guessing, at some point, if you're like the majority of Christians, this coming year, you're going to begin to have doubts about even, can God be trustworthy? Is this really real? Is this really true? Can I really ground my life, my Christian life, on this gospel? Paul's answer is very simple. When you, can, when you begin to ask, can anyone condemn me, look to Christ. Look to the one who died who rose, who rules and intercedes for you. Think about what we read in Hebrews 7. The former priests, speaking of the priests in the Old Testament, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Similar to what we see here, what Paul says just in a fewer words. Christ died for you. Christ rose for you. Christ is ruling for you and Christ is interceding for you. So who can condemn? Well, the one who has done all these things for you. He is not double-minded. He is not fickle as we are. He has done these things. He will not change his mind. And so who will accuse? Who will condemn? Well, the only ones who can do so effectively is the very one who died for us in the first place. And so we can have confidence that in Christ, we have this assurance. But then there's the question, okay, legally we're justified before him. We are declared righteous in his sight. He is not going to break out in condemnation against us. But maybe someone can come in and weasel their way in and use a crowbar and kind of pry us away from God. Well, Paul deals with that in verses 35 and 36. He asks, what shall separate us or who shall separate us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And so Paul begins to know, I have to address this question. Paul's very good at this. 
He, by this point, the time he's written Romans, he's given this a declaration of the gospel time and time and time again to Jew and to Gentile, to educated and uneducated, to all these people and everyone in between. And he knows already there are going to be certain objections. There are going to be certain things you're going to be asking as you're hearing this, or you're going to be thinking, well, what about this or what about that? And he's answering those objections. Okay, God is for us. We know that. But is that enough if some other thing is against us? Can all the suffering and death and persecution and whatever it might be in this world separate us from God? We can ask, can anything coming in 2024 that we see coming or we don't see coming, can any of those things separate us as painful and as awful as they may be for us to experience in the moment? Can anything separate us from the love of this God? Will suffering and persecution frustrate God's plan? And the answer, of course, is certainly not. That God is in control of all these things, even as he was when his son was hanging on a cross. This is hopeful, yet honest, as Paul comes to this. He is not denying that these things exist, that suffering and pain and persecution and even death exist. We should be honest as well, but in a hopeful way. Yes, we suffer in this life. Yes, sometimes things hit you out of nowhere and you're reeling and you can barely breathe and it seems like everything's piling up on top of you. But there's hope. Why? Because you can be an optimist and everything will just get better? No, not on its own. But there's hope in the one who lived and died for you and the one who sent his own son, who did not spare his own son and will graciously give you all things necessary to bring you to himself in fullness and completeness at the end for all time. Paul quotes there from Psalm 44 and verse 20. And there are a number of different reasons he does this. It's interesting when you turn to that psalm, the next verse and the few verses after that quotation basically ask God, are you asleep? This is what's happening. And of course, eventually, as you keep reading through the Psalter, you realize that God is not asleep, that he is in control of all these things, even when his people suffer. But I think one really helpful thing to consider about this quotation for us as we come to the end of the year and the beginning of another year is that trials and tribulations and suffering and persecution and death and whatever else it is, these things are not new. By the time Paul wrote Romans, these things were already old in the experience of God's people. And they've been the experience of God's people ever since. Trials and tribulations are not new. But through them all, God has been faithful to his people. And he will be faithful to you as well. No matter what it is, no matter when it comes, no matter why it comes, God will be faithful to you through it. How can we be sure that God is for us in the midst of suffering? Well, because of what Christ has done for us. Through the greatest suffering ever experienced, we have all these blessings and more given to us. And so we can have confidence, even as life perhaps turns in a direction we do not want, that God is for us. Now I ask you a question. As you come to the beginning of this new year, do you question God's love for you in Christ? You've repented of your sins, you're trusting in Christ. You know all these things, you've been baptized, you're partaking of the supper, you're doing all these things, perhaps. But do you question God's love for you in Christ? If you do, come back to Romans 8. Take these things into the new year. 
This is the culmination of the section that Paul has been preaching and teaching about through the grace of God in Jesus Christ. He's going to turn to the ideas and questions of Israel and election, all those things in chapter 9. But this is kind of the ultimate goal of where he's been walking all this way. For us to know these things, for us to be assured, it's all been leading to this. And so as you head into 2024, you know the uncertainty and perhaps doubts, certainly into pain and suffering that's coming, although we aren't sure yet what sort, know these things. Remember these things. Be assured of these things. Take comfort and look to your Savior as you approach a new year. Because Christ is a complete Savior. He will not let you be separated. I'm going to repeat that. He will not let you be separated from himself. God will graciously give you all things necessary to bring you to himself. Christ did not die, did not suffer, did not experience all these things just to let you get away at the end. Christ is a complete Savior. Think of these words in Psalm 2 and verse 8. God is speaking here to the Messiah we now know as Jesus Christ. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That's the kind of power that we can only scarcely imagine. It's the kind of power that every dictator dreams of and will never experience. Brothers and sisters, that's what Jesus Christ has. And Jesus Christ is ours and we are his. Who shall separate us from this God? The answer is no one because no one possibly could. And so briefly we see the one answer, even though we've already hinted at it and danced in circles around it quite often in the midst of these questions that are assumed to be answered in a certain way. Verses 37 through 39, we see the one answer that we are more than conquerors. Verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Well, it's quite a picture, isn't it? Sheep being led to slaughter as conquerors. More than conquerors. How can this be? I don't probably have to give you an idea in your head of what it would look like for sheep to be led to slaughter. It doesn't exactly look like a ripe time for an uprising or a conquest or any of those sorts of things. The power is not in the sheep. The strength is not in the sheep that are being led to slaughter. The strength is in the conqueror himself. We are sheep that perhaps are sometimes being led to slaughter. We are suffering all these various things, but we conquer because one has conquered for us and is with us through the end. And we are honestly following in his path in some ways. We are doing it in the same way, but the path of Christ was suffering and then glory, and it's the same for us. God sustained him through it all just as he will sustain us. He welcomed him into glory as one day he will welcome us, and even in the midst of it, we can be That the one who conquered and reigns as king of kings loved us enough to die for us. 2024 is unknown. But we can know this. This is just as true now, just as true in this coming year, as it was in 2023 and every year since the beginning. God's love in Christ is stronger. Look with me again at verses 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so this is quite a list and it has varying extremes on it. Height or depth, things present, things to come, those sorts of things. What these things are meant to do is to come together as a whole and show comprehensiveness. You can go from one extreme to the other and everything in between, and none of these things will be able to separate us. 
None of these things will keep us from God or keep him from us. That's the ultimate point. Nothing in creation is able to separate us from the love of our creator and savior. Remember, there are only really two main categories. There's creator and creation. Nothing in creation can separate us, and the creator himself wants us not to be separated. So there's confidence there. Because what's left? Clearly nothing. Nothing left to separate us. Nothing left, nothing that can outpower God, that can outwill God, any of these things. God's love in Christ is stronger than anything in all creation. And this strong love, this strong salvation is complete and everlasting. In other words, God does not give white elephant gifts. Perhaps you've participated in that. And it can be somewhat confusing for children the first time. But you come together and everyone brings a gift, usually of small monetary value. And you all open it in turn after picking names out of the hat. And of course, your gift can be stolen. And stolen's kind of a harsh word, even though it is somewhat true. It's part of the game. We can ask, does God give gifts like that? Oh, I've unwrapped this, it's mine, and here comes someone whose name was picked in the hat next, they're going to come and take it away from me. The answer is certainly not. God gives these gifts, he makes these promises, surely and completely and everlastingly. And so this brings us to hope for the new year. Hope for 2024. And I can ask you, do you have questions and doubts about this coming year? Well, probably all of us, if we're sitting here and honest and thinking about it to ourselves for a period of time, can come up with things that we aren't entirely sure about. Things that perhaps give us pause and make us consider things. Even as we consider as a congregation a church plant that we were, humanly speaking, thinking would have been off the ground several months ago. And we come into 2024 and we aren't sure about things and we have wonderings and doubts. How can we have confidence? Because we know that whatever comes, whatever God brings to us on this earth is for his glory and ultimately for our good, that he will graciously give us all things that lead us to him, even as he has not spared Christ, but has given him to us. If these things weren't true, then we probably should look at 2024 with fear and trembling. Because we're just humans, and we can't have strength and power and foresight and all these things, and all these things are bigger than us. But if these things are true, and they are, then take comfort. Double down on these things. Be assured of the gospel as we begin the new year. I speak now especially to all the young people here, high school and younger. It's possible. I don't know each and every single one of your life experiences and your entire life lived. It's possible that where you are in life right now, you have not experienced great suffering and doubt. But I can all but guarantee you, you will. It's part of life as a weak sinner on this fallen earth. When you do experience those things, when any of us experience these things, God is calling you to remember him, to look to him, to have confidence in him. When doubts come, when trials and tribulations come, come back to Romans 8, come to this list, and try to figure out a way that your trouble and trial and tribulation is not included in this list because there's no possible way that's true. This list is comprehensive. This list is everlasting. This list is the list of things that cannot keep you from God in Christ. It covers everything. 
So have confidence in your God as you know who he is and what he has given you in Jesus Christ. These things were true in 2023. These things will be true in 2024. Ask and answer these questions to yourself this year. And keep in mind what we read in Heidelberg 1. That you are not your own but belong body and soul and life and in death to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You are his, he is yours, and he will keep you no matter what comes. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come to a new year that is so uncertain and dark to us, we know that you are in control of all things, that you have decreed all things, that you have given us Jesus Christ, and certainly with him you will give us all things necessary to bring us to yourself. We ask that you would give us hope and confidence for the new year, not in ourselves or in the the idea that things will just generally go well, but in you as our creator and sustainer and redeemer. We pray, Lord, that you would, through this year, make us more and more into the image of Christ as we approach even closer to the last day, the day when Christ returns, when we see him face to face, where we are changed in, in resurrection and glorified bodies, dwelling with you everlastingly. We praise you for this hope. We ask that you would make it real to us in new and fresh ways. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.